Well, good morning, Four Corners. It is a blessing to be with you all. I hope that you are considering the privilege of gathering together with God's people. You know, we have great times with the Lord during the week in our own prayer closets or living room in our pajamas or wherever else. Um, but what a privilege it is to actually gather together with God's people and to uh, hear His Word and to sing praises to His name. And let me just encourage us this morning... This is a key time each week where we can be a great source of strengthening to our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, there's that passage in Philippians that talks about looking not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's one of the things that I think being here on Sunday morning gives us the opportunity to really be focused on the interests of others, to be attentive to areas of struggle and areas of pain in each other's lives, and to be able to speak the gospel, even content from the sermon, content from the text, content from these songs we sing, into each other's lives, and to be that source of encouragement to one another as we're here today. So let's not be fruitless uh, as we gather this morning, both in our listening and in our usefulness to one another. So last week, In our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at the topic of false prophets or false teachers, and I hope that you had some good discussion in your groups this past week about that topic. Uh, I did not, I refrained from giving any names in the sermon last week, and it's it's generally wise to do that, although not always, uh, at least in a a public fashion here, uh, preaching Uh, to you all, but hopefully this week you were able maybe to iron that out a little bit and cite individual instances or particular teachings that uh, would, would apply to that category of false prophets or false teachers. Jesus tells us that they will be in the church So false teachers, as we saw last week, or false prophets, those who say they speak for God, they will be in the church. They are a reality. They are are really there. They're not something that we just imagine or something that might happen to come upon the church at, at a particularly thorny time in the history of the church, but they are simply there, and they always have been there or here we might say here, not necessarily now, today, or not necessarily in Four Corners Church, but here in the church, the church universal, and at any given time can be in any local church. So they are a reality. And we saw last week that we have a responsibility and an ability to recognize them. So we know that false teachers uh, exist in the church. They are among us. They come to us to use the language of Jesus. And not only that, but we have the responsibility, we must beware of them. We have the responsibility of identifying them. And Jesus tells us that we're not left without recourse in that regard. That we are able to discern those false prophets and false teachers by their fruit. We must do, as 1 John 4, 1 says, and test, (coughs) test the spirits to see whether they are from God Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we have to test. And just as we must test or examine prophets or teachers or teaching, so too must we examine ourselves. You know, it's easy when we're thinking about testing for genuineness or authenticity. It's easy to point that outward. It's easy to make that exclusively something. You know, one of the things that 
people often joke about is in when you come to church, you gather together and you hear a sermon and you're maybe thinking about someone in your mind who's sitting in the congregation or someone you know maybe who should be in the congregation in your mind. They should be in the congregation, but they're not. And you're thinking either to yourself, I hope they're listening. Or you're thinking to yourself, man, they didn't come today. They better listen to this on podcast. They need this. And so we are very good at examining other people. We're very good at sizing them up. You know, we, we saw that when we came to the beginning of chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount with do not judge. That there's a way to examine and test the spirits, but then there's a way to just sort of de- devolve into judgmentalism, into criticism, into always sort of sizing one another up. We're really good at that. And oftentimes, we're really good at examining other people in the wrong kinds of ways and being naive in our examination in the right kinds of ways. But we're good at the outward. But we are told that we must also examine ourselves. We must also turn those eyes inward and begin to look at ourselves. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Isn't that incredible? That that we're actually told by the apostle that it is good and healthy and right and appropriate to examine ourselves to make sure that we really are Christians. That is the obligation of every person who's sitting here this morning, all of us, me, all of you, all of us, that we examine ourselves to make sure we are in the faith, to see whether you are in the faith, he says. Test yourselves. So here's a question for all of us. What role does self-examination play in your life? One of the reasons why we put the confession of sin explicitly in our service at the very beginning is because this forces us to examine ourselves. There are two times in the service where we together examine ourselves. One of those is at the very beginning. After marveling at the holiness of God and adoring him, we then in response to that consider our own sinfulness and we confess our sins together as a body. And then at the end with the Lord's Supper, when we're preparing for the Lord's Supper, we do as Paul says, We examine ourselves individually as we come to partake of the Lord's Supper. So we do this collectively as a body as we gather together on Sunday for worship. But here's the question for all of us personally, individually. What role does does what Paul says here, examining yourself to see whether you are in the faith, what role does that play in your life, in your spiritual life? In your spiritual disciplines, are you pretty casual and nonchalant about your spiritual condition? Oftentimes, we tend to rely on things that we should not rely on when it comes to our spiritual condition. We tend, we're going to see some of that today. We tend to look at things that should not be the focus. But what is your attitude overall? What is your attitude towards your spiritual state Where you are with God, your spiritual vitality, your standing before God, and then your health and your vitality as a believer, as a Christian. What level of attentiveness is there to those questions 
in our lives. I appreciate the guidance that James Montgomery Boyce gives us here. He says this, ask the Lord to reveal the state of your own heart before him and allow him to lead you to the fullness of belief in Christ and commitment to him. Ask the Lord. We've seen that. We must be poor in spirit. We must ask and seek and knock on the door, asking God to show us. Here's the truth about it. Oftentimes we examine ourselves and our hearts are deceitful. We don't even see. We learn in Hebrews that the word of God is able, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to cut through to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Very often we are in a place where we can't even see clearly. We are deceived. We can't even assess ourselves or examine ourselves. And that's why he says here, ask the Lord to reveal your heart to you. Ask, your Lord to, to ask the Lord to reach into yourself, grab your heart, and hold it up before your eyes so that you can see all of its contours, the motives that lie within it, hidden to your own sight. This is what we read in Psalm 139. Verses 23 to 24, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When we come to God with a prayer like that, Search me, God. Search my heart. Show me what's really in there. He does it. God is faithful to answer this kind of request. And there are probably few passages in the whole Bible that force us to a place of self-examination more than Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. So if you would go ahead and go there in your Bibles, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. <coughs> <clears throat> You know, we've been confronted with some hard passages of Scripture, and it just gets harder today. So here's the thing we need to consider. As we are going through this passage of God's Word, Jesus is really reaching a climax here with us. Jesus has given us much to consider about our own lives, our own motives, about our righteousness, how we perceive righteousness, how we see what the Christian life entails, how we see what Jesus' demands are on our lives. He's given us so much to consider. And now it almost seems relentless as Jesus chases out true disciples. True disciples, that's who Jesus is after as we get to the end of chapter 7. Here's what Lloyd-Jones says about this passage that we're going to look at today. These surely are in many ways the most solemn and solemnizing words ever uttered in the world. Wow. For someone like Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you know anything about him, an expositor par excellence, has gone through so much of the scriptures. For someone like him to say that, I think is pretty telling. Not only by any man, but even by the Son of God himself. These words are extremely solemn 
And the only way in which we can consider them truly is to do so in the light of the fact that a day is coming when all earthly scenes shall pass away. It is a word addressed to men and women who are conscious of the fact that they will have to stand before God in final judgment. These are solemn words, he says. Will these words sit upon our hearts in a solemn way as we hear them and engage with them personally today? If you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works In your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would open up his word to us and that each of us would, in a real way, do business with the Lord this morning underneath. His word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word, the Bible. We are grateful that we open it up and it does, in fact, teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us in righteousness. Father, we are grateful for this wonderful sermon of your son as he delivered it on that mountaintop there 2,000 years ago. And as we have it recorded here in the Gospel of Matthew, and as it has been commented on throughout the centuries by your church. Father, we're grateful for these words of of truth, these words of wisdom, these words of life. Father, we ask that you would do a great and mighty work in each of us today. Father, you are a mighty God. You are mighty to save. You are mighty to change. You can take a sinner like Paul, a murderer of your people, and make him the apostle to the Gentiles. You can make him the one who would author most of the New Testament. Father, you can take the thief on the cross who had lived his entire life in debauchery and lawlessness and in a moment change his heart and turn him to Christ. And Father, we know that that same power is here with us today through your word, by your spirit. And so, Father, we do not gather here today vainly. We do not gather here today hopelessly. We we gather here today knowing, Abba, Father, that you love your children and that you are a God who saves and a God who sanctifies Would you save today? Would you sanctify today? Would you do it through your word? Help us, Father. We greatly need you. As Jesus looked out and saw all the people 
And he saw that they were wandering around like sheep without a shepherd. And they were there in all of their folly. Lord, he had compassion on them. I pray today that he would have compassion upon us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is Considering the Final Verdict. So why have I chose this as a, as a title, Considering the Final Verdict? Well, I want to just kind of show you some bits from the text, a little bit of observation that kind of substantiates that title or that theme for what we're going to talk about today, Considering the Final Verdict. So the first word, final. Why have I said that this is final? And the reason is because Jesus really here hits the fast forward button and takes us to the last day. He takes us to the last judgment. He moves from that that scene there on the side of the mountain all the way to judgment day when people will stand before him. And he does the same for us here today. 2,000 years after Jesus did that for them, he hits the fast forward button for us and he pushes us forward to consider that final judgment day. And so we read the words, verse 22, on that day. On that day. So it's final, it is a verdict because here we have the final pronouncement of the judge. Jesus is here portrayed as the judge. And he is the one who gives the pronouncement. He is the one who gives the verdict regarding whether one enters or departs. Notice that. That the focus in the very first verse, in verse 21, is the kingdom of heaven. That's the focus. And one will either gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven or be given entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Or one will either be told to go away from the kingdom of heaven. They will be told to depart And the pronouncement comes from the judge himself, the Lord Jesus. Verse 23, I will declare to them. This is the language of authority. Notice at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, those very last verses, which we'll get to shortly. It says in verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. The first place where we saw Jesus' authority so clearly was when Jesus was, was saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He was saying, I am the authoritative one. I am the one who explicates God's law. I am the one who gives a a binding authoritative teaching and message to you. And I think we see that another high point of Jesus' authority here as he presents himself as the Lord, the judge, who will give a pronouncement on every single person. That's us. One day, each One of us will stand before this judge who is speaking to us here in Matthew chapter 7 on this very day, November the 12th. One day, each, each of us will stand before him and be given entrance into his kingdom, as it says here, or will be told, depart from me, as we read in verse 23. And as this text brings us forward to that day, to that pronouncement, we are meant to stop and to consider, to ask yourself this question. What will Jesus's final verdict be on my profession 
of faith in him. On my life, right now, as it stands right now, ask yourself that question. What will Jesus' pronouncement be on me, on my profession of him, on my claim to know him and to follow him? Because each of us awaits this day. And here in this passage, Jesus points us to at least four things that help us to rightly consider and prepare for his final verdict. Four things that we need to consider this morning as we consider and prepare for Jesus' final verdict. You know, there was a, a monk in, uh, in, in the late Middle Ages named Thomas Akempis. He wrote The Imitation of Christ. I don't know if you've ever read that. It's a kind of a devotional classic. John Wesley, in particular, comments on how instrumental it was in his own spiritual life. And one of the things that Thomas Akempis says is that we should have the day of our death always before our eyes. And as morbid as that sounds, that is the biblical worldview. See, to the world, that is utterly senseless. That is absolutely backwards. Live, don't think of death. That is, that is morbid and dark. What is wrong with you? You're weird, you're strange. But to the Bible, that is essential because the Bible tells us that each man must die. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Every person awaits this day. So how do we prepare for this day? How do we consider this day that awaits every single one of us? Jesus tells us here four things that I think are essential as we walk out of here this morning and begin to freshly prepare for that day. The first thing Jesus tells us is that empty words fail. That, and then secondly, that false professions abound Thirdly, that great acts deceive. And finally, that knowing Jesus assures. So we're going to spend our time today looking at each one of these as we just simply walk through these verses, chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. So the first of them is this, empty words fail. They fail now and they will fail on that day when people stand before Jesus. Empty words fail. Look at verse 21 again, if you will. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In Acts chapter 16, we read this story of Paul and Silas as they're thrown into a Philippian jail. Maybe you're familiar with that, and they're there in that jail, and they're singing praises to God in the midst of their incredible suffering, and, and, and there God brings an earthquake miraculously, and it opens up all the doors in the jail and tears off the shackles. The jailer kind of comes to, wakes up, and he realizes all the doors are open, everything's gone wrong, all the prisoners have escaped, and so he decides, I'm just going to commit suicide because it's going to be far worse for me once they find out that all these prisoners have escaped. And so Paul stops him from doing that. Don't, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't kill yourself. And this jailer says to Paul and Silas, what must I do? to be saved. 
And their response is this, believe in the Lord. Lord, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So here's the question that every single one of us has to answer, ask and answer, and it is this, what does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? Yes, faith alone. We talk about that at the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, 1517, Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg. So faith alone, one of the five solas, one of the the great heritage of the Protestant Reformation, we are saved by faith alone, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is truth. But what does it mean to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? We know from various places in the New Testament that to be a Christian is to confess Jesus as Lord. We know that. Throughout the New Testament, the one that you probably memorized a long time ago, maybe if you've been in church, if you haven't, this is one that's probably the most familiar is Romans 10, 9. So I'll go with this one. It says we are those, that we as Christians are those who confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. So what does it mean to confess Jesus as (coughs) Lord? Well, first of all, it means that we must confess him as God, as deity. And here's here's one of the, there's many things I could say on this point, but I just want to go back to the beginning of Matthew. Look at Matthew 3.3, just so you don't have to flip around too much. You can go back just a few pages to Matthew 3.3. I want to show you something that, if it hasn't struck you, should, should really strike you and, and, and be kind of amazing to you, especially in light of the fact that people will often say that it's not Matthew and Mark and Luke who make much about the deity of Jesus. It's John and Paul in particular. That early on in Christianity, early on, there was not this exalted view of Jesus, this high Christology there was, there was a low Christology, but, but as time went by, Jesus became inflated and he began to be exalted or elevated to divine status. That's the view that, that some have articulated. But here we see it with Matthew as well. Matthew 3.3, 3, look at the ministry of John the Baptist. How is it defined? For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet, speaking of John, Isaiah, Spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now what am I referring to here? Well, this is a a quote from Isaiah 43. And when you read Isaiah 43 in Hebrew, it's the name Yahweh. To prepare for Yahweh. Which means that we know from the narrative that John the Baptist is preparing the way of who? Jesus of Nazareth. Which means that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord Yahweh himself. Just that small little detail there tells us that Jesus is Lord in the sense that he is God. He is the Lord God himself. He is divine. He is God's son. The word through whom all things were made. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the exact representation of his nature. 
In him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God. And so to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess him as God, which means right off the cuff that any group, cult, offshoot that does not say that Jesus is the Lord God himself is inherently false. It is wicked. It is corrupt. It is a lie because Jesus is God. So that's the first thing it means when we talk about Jesus being Lord. Another thing that we need to consider, one that brings it a little closer to home, to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess his ownership of us. It is to confess that he is our master and our owner. See how it's more personal now, right? You can recite the creed and say, yes, Jesus is Lord. I'll read it up there. I'll recite it. I'll say it. I'll, I'll have this orthodox point of doctrine in place. Yes. Uh, matter of fact, I do believe that Jesus is God. Check. Great. It's more than that. It gets much more personal than that. To say that Jesus is Lord, to confess him as Lord, is to call him owner. Jesus, you own me. You are my master. That is what it means to confess him as Lord. And what Jesus presents to us in this passage are people, listen to this, this is so important, people who affirm Jesus as Lord and people who openly call him Lord, but who do not live as though he is their Lord. Do you see that? You've got affirmation and you've got profession in this first verse. Lord, Lord calling him Lord, believing that he is Lord. These are people who would say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. These are people who would say, yes, Jesus is God. So much so, so as we go on a little further, he will talk about divine power, miracles, and mighty works, and so forth. These things are associated with God, the casting out of demons. So clearly here, these are people who have that orthodox belief correct. They look over on the board, and they can read the creed, in good conscience. But they do not live as though Jesus is their Lord. And how do we know that? Well, we look at the parallel in Luke 6, 46. And this is what Jesus says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It just makes such obvious sense. Why would you call me master and owner of your life and not listen to me and not obey me and not do precisely and fervently and devotionally what I tell you to do? Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? It couldn't be any more plain and simple than that. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 50 that a relationship with him entails a certain relationship to God's will. Here's what he says. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, I love this passage, listen to this, this, this is so important. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus, his family comes to him, he's teaching, and they tell Jesus, hey, your family's out there, they wanna talk with you. Jesus goes ahead and he wipes that out. It doesn't wipe that out, that's still his family, but Jesus wants to make very clear who he is and what he came to do. And he says this, you are in relationship to me 
insofar as you are in right relationship to the will of God. Who is it that relates to Jesus or belongs to Jesus? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. That is my brother and my sister and my mother. So here's the question for each of us. What's our profession? Is it empty words or active obedience? Have you died to yourself? Have you died to self and become a slave of Jesus Christ, the one who died for sinners? That's what Jesus forces us to answer here. Empty words, even if they are orthodox words, and even if they involve intellectual assent. See, belief is not mere intellectual assent because what does James say? That even the demons believe and tremble. They intellectually assent. Even when Jesus was walking around, they called him the Holy One of God. They know who he is. It's not about merely assenting intellectually. Yes, I believe those truths. Therefore, I am a Christian. No, unless a man is born again, he will never enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says clearly. So the first thing to consider is empty words fail. The second is that false professions abound. Now here, I want to draw your attention to just one word which is probably the most startling word of this passage. And in in some ways, maybe the most startling word of all of the Sermon on the Mount in this context, it is this word at the very beginning of verse 22 as we move along in the passage, many, many. On that day, Jesus says, many, many will say, To me, Lord, Lord. We have recently encountered this word in a similar context, chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Jesus says this, if you remember, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, by it are many, many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So we've already encountered this language of many. We've already been told that there will be many in our world who travel travel along the broad and easy way that leads to destruction. Okay, we've already got that in our minds. But here in our passage for today, Jesus takes this even further. You must see this. This is heavy. This is solemn. This is startling. It is terrifying. He takes it further, and Jesus says that there will be many professing Christians who will have empty, false professions. Many, not just many people on the road to hell and destruction as the Gentile pagans will be and as the hypocritical Pharisees will be, but there will be many within the umbrella, under the umbrella of Christian who will be false. Many will say to me on that day. I remember hearing this passage preached as a kid and it shook me to the core because it tells us that much of the vague Christianity 
uncommitted Christianity that we find in ourselves and all across our land is false. It's not real. It's empty. It's empty profession. But here's the thing. Jesus goes even further. It's not just professing Christians. Do you see what he's doing here? It's not just a broad way. There'll be many who go to destruction. Okay, many, because you got all the, you know, uh, you got the witches and you've got the, the Buddhists and you've got all the others, the false religions all there on that road. Okay, that makes sense. Then Jesus wants to take it a step further and he wants to say, no, no, no. There will be many professing Christians who will not enter the kingdom, but he takes it a bit further. And this is where it becomes that much more startling. Not just professing Christians, but those who call Jesus Lord. There will be many who appear to have a perfectly orthodox understanding of who Jesus is and who do what they do in his name. Notice the rest of this verse. It goes on to say, I did this in your name. I did that in your name. These are people who recognize Jesus for who he is and they claim that he is who he is. They affirm that he is who he is and they actually live a life of practices in his name. Wow. Many who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this leads Kent Hughes, a commentator on this passage, to conclude, sadly, multitudes of evangelical Christians are not born again. They are lost. Is that you? Are you lost? So back to my introduction. We must examine ourselves. Mere affirmation and profession does not equate to being a Christian. Even if right now you would say, Jesus is the Son of God, check. Jesus is the Christ, check. Jesus rose from the dead, check. Jesus died, a penal substitutionary atonement, check. And you use the Lord Jesus language all the time, very devotional, there can be false affirmation and false profession. And Jesus here wants to draw us away from all of that. And he wants us to be true disciples who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and who follow him. So thirdly, that brings us to great acts deceive. So we've seen that empty words fail. False professions abound Great acts deceive. Look at verse 22, the remainder of that verse. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? What we have here is truly extraordinary. It really is. These professing Christians who are not really Christians, listen to this, this is, this is hard to, to take in. These professing Christians who are not really Christians will be able to look back and cite a record of great works done in the name of Jesus. They will actually be able to look back and delineate and point to the things that they did and not just everyday things, but spectacular, marvelous, outstanding, extraordinary things. 
And it's important to note this. This is very important. Jesus does not challenge them on their claims. Do you notice that? When we look at verse 23, which we'll do in a moment, what we don't see Jesus saying is, no, you didn't do that. That's not what Jesus says. And it is so important that we understand that. The issue is not that they are lying. The issue is not that their claims are false. They actually did do these things in Jesus' name to no avail. To no avail. So what do we make of this? Craig Blomberg explains in this way, signs and wonders can come from sources other than God, including both the demonic world and human manufacture. And we see this throughout the Bible. I could cite many examples. Saul, Balaam. Well, examples also where God will use feeble instruments, where God will use people who aren't even his own. We have that going on as well. But with regard to Satan's power being behind these signs and wonders, we have a passage like this. Just a little while later in Matthew chapter 24, verse verse 24, he says this. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. He's talking here about the end of the age. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You know what that tells us? That there are going to be people one day who are going to do so many wonderful things that even true Christians will be be almost moved to follow them. But not moved because we know Christ preserves those whom he owns. But these signs and wonders will be so incredible and so convincing. So many people will be led astray. If that is the case then... Surely there will be many who stand before the Lord citing a record of even these kinds of things. And here is what is truly alarming to us as we apply this to ourselves. If these marvelous things can be done by false converts, hear this, hear this. If these marvelous things can be done by false converts, how much more Can the everyday great acts of religion be done by false converts? The things that we cling to and hold on to for assurance of our salvation, for assurance that we really belong to Jesus, our great acts of self-sacrifice as we see it, our great acts of service, our preaching and our singing and whatever else it might be. Do you rely on some kind of record of service? Do you envision yourself standing before the Lord Christ, the Lord of glory, one day, and if it doesn't quite go so well at first, you're going to pull that out your back pocket, you're going to unroll it, and you're just going to show Jesus, in case he wasn't paying attention, all of the things that you did, all of the times that you attended church, all of the ways that you served your neighbor, all of the things you did for your gospel community group, all the Bible verses you, Jesus, you've forgotten all the Bible verses you've memorized and all these things that you've done, whatever they might be, all the money you've given to the Lord's work, all of it, 
the preaching, the sermons you've preached, all of it, whatever it might be, pull out that record and show that to Jesus. That'll let him know that you really do belong in the kingdom. Do you draw assurance from notable religious activities? What Jesus tells us here is that these things can deceive us. These things will, in fact, deceive many, many. Finally, knowing Jesus assures. Look at verse 23 as we finish up this morning. Chapter 7, verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What an incredible thought that Jesus would say that one day to any of us in this room today. So here's the final verdict. Even though these individuals affirm and confess Jesus as Lord, and even though they do great acts in his name, they are denied entrance into the kingdom of heaven with the words, depart from me. In contemporary parlance, get out of my face. Get out of my presence. Away with you, worker of lawlessness. Is this the view of Jesus that you have? Or is yours more cuddly? Because this is the biblical Lord Christ. This is the one who will come back one day and slay his enemies. This is the one who will throw the devil into the lake of fire and by his angels every sinner who does not repent and believe on him. This is Christ. This is the Christ who speaks to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the reason Jesus gives here? For this, depart from me. What's the reason he gives? I never knew you. That's it. Every person in heaven will be one who is known by and knows Jesus personally. Do you know Jesus personally? Do you have a personal relationship with this blessed son of God, with this Christ, with this Jesus John 10, 27 to 28 says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Can you imagine that picture? Shepherd calling out, the sheep hear him. They hear him and they go. They go to him because he is, he is their precious shepherd who guards them and keeps them from the wolves and the lions. He prepares a place for them, Psalm 23. They hear his voice and they go to him. They know him. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. They will not perish because they are known by Jesus. And their knowing Jesus, notice this, means that they follow me. They hear my voice and they follow me. See, some of us maybe think that we are sheep, but when the Lord Jesus speaks, we're deaf. When the Lord Jesus speaks, we go the other way. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And here is an important observation that we must not miss as we finish up today. 
What does it mean to know Jesus? This is so important. We have to get this today. What does it mean to know Jesus? Or let me say it this way. What does it look like to know Jesus? Let me say what they're, let me, let me put this out there first. There is a temptation, I think, today for us to associate knowing Jesus or having a personal relationship with Jesus. There's a, there's a temptation for us to view that entirely emotionally or devotionally. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we think about having a personal relationship with Jesus, probably because of some very false, wrong, maybe not false, but misguided ideas of the Christian life, we primarily see that in very emotional, devotional, me and Jesus, while I sing the songs, while I'm riding down the road, when I read my devotional in the morning, when I read my Bible, we tend to see that in, it in that way. It's very emotional, it's very devotional. That's what it means to know Jesus personally. That's not what Jesus puts before us here. And that will be the case. We will walk with him. We will enjoy him and delight in him and meditate upon his word and prayerfully consider him and come to the Father in his name and, and be with him all throughout the day. That is all true. But notice what Jesus says here. What does it mean to know Jesus? The answer comes at the end of verse 23. Look at this. I never knew you, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They don't know Jesus because they are workers of lawlessness. That is where Jesus, hear this, that is where Jesus wants to situate knowing him. He wants you to think in those terms, not in emotional, devotional terms. No, 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 no. He wants you to think in, the, in terms of sin, righteousness, lawlessness, knowing Jesus, and not being lawless and unrighteous, Jesus puts together. So being in relationship to Jesus entails a certain kind of relationship to sin, to unrighteousness or lawlessness. Now notice this. We get this from the beginning of redemption. Romans 4, 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds, same word, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So here's the thing. If you're really a Christian, your lawless deeds have been dealt with at the cross as Christ has taken away your sin, put it on himself, giving you his righteous standing before God, and he took your sin and punishment upon himself at the cross. Your sins have been forgiven. But here's the thing you need to understand. You have already communicated a relationship to lawlessness. You've died to it. You've put it behind you. Christ took it. Titus 2.14, which we looked at in our last series. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now, here's the thing. Listen to this, and don't hear this wrongly. It doesn't say, Jesus gave himself for us so that we might spend time with him here and there or, or emotionally think of him throughout the day. That's great, great stuff. But that's not what it says. It says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from sin, from all lawlessness. And hear these sobering words from 1 John. Chapter three, verses six to 10. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no preacher, let no book, let no podcast deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And here, I think we are drawn back to a text I cited earlier, Matthew 12, verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Here's the thing. Jesus says, if you have a personal relationship with me, you do the will of God. If you care nothing for the will of God, if you do not, now it's not just caring. If you do not do, do the will of God, Jesus says, you don't know me. You don't know me. You may have some kind of new age spirituality with Jesus at the center, but you do not know me. So, do you know Jesus as Lord? Do you know him as Lord? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you set out to follow this Christ? You said, Come what may, I cast all sin aside. I will follow you, Jesus, the rest of my days. You will be my king, my master, my owner, my Lord, not myself. I want to be a real Christian trusting in your blood spilt for me and following you as you have dictated in your word. Do you know the Lord? Is he the Lord of your life? I want to finish with a quote this morning from John MacArthur, which will help us to understand kind of where the Christian who sins fits into all of this. I like what he says here. He says, no Christian is sinless. That's not what Jesus is saying. No Christian is sinless. But the fact that we continually confess our sins, seek the Lord's forgiveness, and long For righteousness is evidence that we belong to him. If sin dominates your life, if there's no confession or very little confession, and what you do have is in name only, if you are still very much at the center of your own world, And if you do not hunger and thirst for righteousness, you have every reason this morning, every reason to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. This is Christ's word to us, and it is gracious. He calls us out of lethargy and sleepiness, and he calls us to say, okay, Christ, I will listen to you. I will heed your word. I will not play with divine things. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled by this 
strong teaching from Jesus. Father, would each of us, each and every one of us examine ourselves this day. Would we not allow lunch or conversations or even the responsibilities of life to to take this word from our hearts today? But would would it not be choked would it not be snatched away? Would we let these, these words settle down deep into fertile soil? And would they bear fruit in every life, in whatever way, God, whatever way you see fit for the Christian? Would a greater seriousness about you begin to take root? Would a, would a turning from inward to an outward focus as we consider other people and begin to love them and do unto them as we would have them do unto us as we begin to love our neighbor as ourselves? Would a a prayerful vitality begin to take root where we ask and seek and knock all the time at your throne? Father, would those today, potentially who are among us, who really are not Christians, Father, would you convert them today Would they hear the word of Christ? Would they put their faith in you, the Lord Jesus, who died for sinners? Would they believe and would they turn away from their life of sin and begin to follow you? God, only you can do this work of conversion. But nonetheless, you put on us the responsibility to respond. We must hear and respond. And so, Father, today, would people respond? to you. In Jesus' name, amen.